Hello, hello, hello. Clive here. I'm speaking on my shitty laptop mic before the episode starts because I'm just here to tell you that my mic still isn't fixed. Um, I did use my work headset in this episode, which sounds a bit better than whatever I was using before. So slightly better sound quality, but not as silky smooth as Michael Johnson and Alex Wayne. Um, but anyway, the quality is still there, obviously. Um, I hope you enjoy the episode. This was recorded three weeks ago and I've only just got around to editing it. Editing should be a little bit quicker from now on because in case you didn't realise, my album, my album has just been released on a whole variety of streaming services. Anyway, this isn't the place to plug that, is it really? Anyway, enjoy your episode. Toodles. your head out of the clouds Get your feet back on the ground Get stuck into pop culture We'd stick around Hello there and welcome to Stick Around The podcast which is sorry if you perceive us to have unintentionally bullied you Brought to you by Chicken Crazy, the craziest chicken in all of Darlington. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, to give that a little bit of context, Clive, you, you're probably as confused as all the listeners. But um, I am very confused, but in a sort of good way. Well, um, Chicken Crazy is a, um, it, it's a takeaway concept launched by the Green King pub chain. Um, which I'm assuming is up and down the country, but um, it, it runs from a particular pub in Darlington, uh, which backs onto one of our friends' houses and perhaps occasional listener, David Lipthorpe. Um, so what tends to happen is he gets knocks on his door about three or four times a week from deliver- Uber Eats drivers, ask, trying to pick up chicken crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, at, the time of, uh, at the time of recording, this has happened six times. <laughs> is is their tagline the craziest chicken? No, we've just made that up. But uh... <laughs> clearly, it is crazy, though. It is. It does sound pretty crazy. Chicken crazy. <laughs> the Come best on. part, according to Dave, is that when he answers the door, uh, all they say is "chicken crazy." <laughs> that sounds it's, right. To be fair, it's may, maybe this isn't a real takeaway. It's like. Um... <laughs> it's that's a password to some QAnon style pedo ring or something like that. <laughs> oh, which, Dave, to... which Dave is now implicated in. Uh, well, for legal reasons, I'd probably like to state that David Lipthorpe is not a part of a QAnon style <laughs> ring, uh, <laughs> as best we know. Yes, as best we know. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Right, well. It... <laughs> It's good. It's good to be back. Um, I'm glad I don't live that close to a takeaway, because um, that would be quite annoying, I imagine. <laughs> I just, I wish I'd, I wish I'd seen the first time it happened. That would have been baffling, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah I think ch- chicken crazy, and I've not ordered anything. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining um, this guy can't say anything else. Like he just says chicken crazy, but with different intonations and day like of up. Like a Pokemon. Yeah, and Dave's yeah. just getting, um, you know, weirded well, out. Chicken crazy? Chicken crazy? Chicken crazy! Chicken crazy! 
<laughs> that was quite essential, that one. Um, anyway, how how have we been? Um, we're, this is obviously stick around. We're here to talk about all sorts of stuff. Um, it's been probably three weeks since the last one. I can't remember. Uh, and I'm here with um, general expert Alex Wayne. Yep. I'm a um, jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> well, I don't know. I said, I think you're ex- general. I suppose general expert by by. It just sounds like yeah. It sounds like jack of all trades, doesn't it? Even though it's got yeah. the word expert in it, because you can't really be an expert in everything. No, you can't. You just can't. Which is why I'm not. Okay, good. That will explain <laughs> it. Um, and general expert Michael Johnson. What's cracking? Um. I wish I had some cracking, actually. That would be good. Pair of the dog. Oh, beautiful whiskey. Beautiful bottle. As well. <laughs> Not whiskey, rum. Um, yeah, beautiful bottle as well. A, it's a great bottle. I thought you said uh, crackling there for a second. I could go for some of that. A bit of crackling with some cracking. Wow. What a great what combo. A combo. That would be a great combo for the, for a Sunday morning after a heavy night. Um, so, how are we all? How have we been doing uh, in our national restrictions? Anything exciting? <clears throat> um, not, not really, no. Um... Obviously, haven't really done anything. Uh, me and Michael had a virtual few beers last night over um, Zoom. Um, that's probably been the most exciting part of my week. Yeah, I've, I've still been going to our office because it's still open, but there's barely anyone there now. Um, and it'll be shut over Christmas for two weeks. So, yeah, weird times. How about you, Clive? Um... So Little Birdie right, so. tells me you're writing um, an album that makes uh, <laughs> Bob Dylan sound like a steaming <laughs> turd from what I've heard. <laughs> wow. Wow. I don't that know where you're hype. hearing these reports from. Um, was, that, was that my private secretary? <laughs> Giving yeah. out dodgy information. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I've just finished recording my album, so that's what I've been busy with. So that's why I don't have loads to talk about. That and we're having the attic done, so they've just started that um, last week, so it's at the minute. We've just got a random wall in the house, which is great. Um, really useless at the minute, but will at some point involve some stairs. Ah, so you're having it converted into a bedroom. Yeah, so we're having to put a wall in so that the stairs can go up, so that the stairs aren't just going straight through the bedroom, if that makes sense. Right, okay. So now we've cool. currently just got a wall in the bedroom, which is shrinking the bedroom without adding any use to the house. Um, nice. So yeah, that. Uh, what else been doing? Yeah, recording the album, which is going to be hopefully out in about three or four weeks. I need to mix it, but it's all done, which I'm excited about. <clears throat> I heard that Thomas. it makes. Uh, I heard it makes Neil Young sound like Ashley Young. <laughs> That's also much better true. than what I said. Uh, I was unprepared, and then I yeah, just said, I had, a, "I had a minute there." Yeah, then you know, it, it's just been occurring to me. I don't know what a steaming turd sounds like. Um, <laughs> could sound excellent, couldn't it? Yeah, it could do. For, yeah, it yeah. might not smell great, but you know, <laughs> yeah, well, it you can't out. smell it through the uh, when you're listening. So, could be a niche. <laughs> um, and I've been obviously doing my. Albums challenge, so yeah, but I'll write about that on the website, so I'm not going to sort of waffle on about that. Um, but let's get started with someone who has been consuming some pop culture. Let's go to Michael Johnson. What have you got for us this week? Well, I'm going to talk about two concepts, Ooh. Uh, and I heard that I'm going to be I'm going to be conceptual bread either side of uh, Alex Wynn's meat. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you phrase that. <laughs> oh yeah, <clears throat> so. The first concept I'm going to talk about is guitars, 
So I'm sure Clive Ooh. will be able to get involved in this. Excellent. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about who my favourite guitarists are, what my favourite style of guitar is, and I've come up with a, a top five, um, a top five personal guitarists, favourite guitarists, and a top five adjectives for describing the guitar sound that I like, <laughs> which I know you guys are already familiar with. And we are. So those adjectives are sleek, serpentine, metallic, aerodynamic, and futuristic. And uh, I think they describe the, the guitar sound that I go for, which seems to be centred in the early to mid-90s as a jumping-off point in the career of these guitarists and is largely centred around developments in alternative and post-metal. So the guitarists are, I'll go through them, um, they're not in any order. So I've got Adam Jones, who anyone who's ever listened to the podcast before knows I'm a massive fan of from the uh, the Titanic alternative metal band Tool. Um, I've spent much of my time since I first got into Tool trying to find alternative rock and metal bands that um, that I can compare to them, uh, which is not very easy. And uh, no, no one's, no one else's playing is quite like uh, Jones's, and I think it really culminated in their most recent album, last year's Fear Inoculum. Um, I think it was it was arguably, although it's not, I wouldn't rank it as uh, the band's best album by any means, I think it was arguably the album where each individual band member put in their best performance of their career so far uh, and really refined their sound. And I think the, the final track, Tempest, which won the Grammy Award for Best Metal Recording, I believe, um, a lot of people cited that as the peak of Jones's career and is uh, an incredible uh, guitar recording. Uh, so there's absolutely no dispute that he'd be he'd be on my list. Uh, also, Stephen Carpenter of Deftones, um, who unfortunately has been in the headlines in the past couple of weeks for being revealing himself to be a massive anti-vaxxer, flat earther, and uh, conspiracy theorist of various stripes. But uh, you know, yeah, this is what happens when you have idols, of course. Um, but makes up for that with uh, yeah, ten, yeah, it, well, it's nine albums now of outstanding guitar playing with Deftones, uh, which has continued to go from strength to strength, uh, including this year's album Orms, which is the first on which he uses a nine-string guitar, um, <laughs> which sounds sounds crazy to me as a layman. But um, yeah, if there is anyone, if there is someone whose guitar sound might be comparable to Jones's somewhat, then Carpenter probably ranks up there. I would say. Um, and I think what is I'll come to this a bit more, but I think I, not all of these guitarists might be incredible technically. I mean, Carpenter isn't known to use guitar solos, for example. Jones, on the other hand, is has been very experimental with his guitar over time and very innovative. <clears throat> but I think. What's important is basically how I've come to making this ranking is I've been watching, I found myself watching a lot of uh, compilation videos on YouTube of people playing the riffs of various bands, uh, which I think are very interesting. I don't know anything technical about guitar, so it's interesting to see how some of these riffs are played uh, and just be able to judge on a basic level um, the various levels of difficulty. And I think it also gives you a different angle in terms of interpreting a band's work. When you're listening to a band's recordings, obviously there's a lot more going on than just the guitar. Uh, you're listening to riffs in in repeat, essentially. 
so when you watch a compilation video across an entire career, it's a bit of a different perspective, a bit of a different way of judging guitar playing, I think. <clears throat> and uh, I mentioned this because I, what was interesting was, uh, certainly someone who was a contender for making this list would be uh, Kurt Cobain, whose riffs and guitar playing I love. And really, the strength of it really comes out in terms of some of these videos that I'm talking about. But when you read comments on these videos, you see a lot of people saying, uh, yeah, Corbin, Corbin did a lot cons with what he had, considering he wasn't a great guitar player. And that, to me, is crazy, you know, because obviously people are talking about it from a technical perspective. Uh, they're talking about not being able to wank off a guitar in the way that, you know, certain <laughs> certain musicians obviously can. And maybe Corbin couldn't, but... The riffs that he came up with and, and what he did for me was incredible and very appealing on a basic level. So it's funny to see how it's uh, interpreted in those different ways. But I'll continue with the list. So uh, I've also got Kurt Ballou from Converge, who is also a prolific producer of albums. Um, he, I mean, Converge are obviously, essentially, uh, they've been a hardcore metalcore band, but they also dabble a lot in the post-rock sort of structures across their albums uh, post metal structures that I've referenced that are also um, familiar to anyone who listens to Tool or Deftones you know contrasting heavy playing with clean slow playing um, much more measured building tracks rather than ferocious ones so he fits into a very similar vein despite being slightly different style to the other guitarists that I'm mentioning on this list uh, another one on my list who is um, very prominent in the guitar playing community, Frederick Thordendal of the Swedish extreme metal giants, Meshuggah, um, essentially comes as a pairing with his rhythm guitarist, Martin Hagstrom, um, because, uh, I, I mean, they basically come as a dual attack on recording. Um, I mean, this 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 is a bit more of an extreme style than uh, than the other guitarists that I'm mentioning, but it's I mean incredible to listen to the way their music has been recorded across uh, their various albums, and the the for anyone who isn't familiar with Meshuggah, the track I would recommend is Bleed from the 2008 album Obzen, which uh, just scintillating to listen to, uh, and Thorden does known for you know polyrhythmic chaos uh, jazz style improvisational techniques and of course having um, originated the subgenre the onomatopoeically titled subgenre of gent which is based on palm muted playing styles so it's something to have to your name as a guitarist uh, when you've spawned uh, a whole movement best exemplified by bands such as uh, Tesseract and for me the French extreme uh, well the basically gent, me gent metal band uh, Uneven Structure whose debut album Februs is uh, definitely a landmark of that style of playing um, but uh, yeah basically again clearly very influenced by Tool so these guitarists all really fit into uh, a similar area and the last of my five I think is a bit more of a wild card I've gone for Paige Hamilton of the band Helmet who I think aren't that well known but whose a classic trilogy in the 90s of Meantime, Betty and Aftertaste are uh, huge markers in the development. I think not just of post-metal, but also new metal. And again, a guitarist who I think I could actually get away with uh, comparing to the styles of the likes of Jones and Carpenter, but certainly the least well-known uh, on this list. And uh, Helmet continue to be a going concern. 
uh, but certainly their best material is concentrated in that 90s period. Uh, so that's some random thoughts there about guitar playing that I've been having lately. Uh, and I think there's an aesthetic similarity between all of these guitarists. There's a definite, definite textural style that I prefer that I might not be able to explain as coherently as I would be able to if I was into guitar playing. Um, but for me, these uh, these are all some of my absolute favourite guitarists. Awesome. Um, I'm glad you brought this up, Michael. Um, and when you mentioned it in the in our WhatsApp group the other day, I was like, "That's a good idea." I need to think about what my top five guitarists are, and I haven't done that because I'm not an organised person. <laughs> um, although I do love lists, but I'm Don't definitely <laughs> definitely going to start thinking about it. Maybe I'll also do a segment on this because uh, it'll be really interesting for me to think. But I think it's such a um, fascinating. I mean, I I always love guitar. I play it, and I've just recently. Um, I've always had an electric guitar, but kind of basically just played it like an acoustic guitar uh, to make a different sound, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Whereas I have recently got like a, a two or three months ago, bought, bought a decent electric guitar and been practicing properly and like learning to play the blues and all different scales and all that stuff, getting into it more and figuring out what different pedals do and what different amps sound like and all that kind of stuff. And it is it, it absolutely, you can totally see why a lot of guitarists are so like really nerdy about it. Yeah. Because it is one of those subjects that there are just so many bloody. <laughs> it's like a whole. It seems like a whole universe, you know. Yeah, it is. From so, the side. Whereas with an acoustic guitar, which is what I've generally played, you basically buy the guitar and then it sounds like whatever you've bought. Yeah, <laughs> and that's yeah. pretty much it. Um, the the uh, electric guitar, like you can change the pickups on it. You can obviously use different amps. You can use different pedals. You can use different strings. You can use all sorts of fucking different stuff you can do to make it sound different. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, it's like, in a way, it's like overwhelming the amount of creativity you can have with it, but it's also kind of great. Um, and I think it's a big part why there are people who, I think you probably get this less with instruments like, like say, a classical piano or uh, even an acoustic guitar, where you think this person's, you go like, oh, he's really good at um, acoustic guitar, but he's technically not good. I think you probably get that less. Yeah. Then you do with an electric guitar because I think creativity comes into it a lot more, and that's where people like Kirk Bain are just really good because they base, you know, come up with searing riffs and stuff and whatever that um, has involved thinking about the sound of it as well as the yeah. technical skill level, if that makes sense. It does yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That. Yeah. But I think another part of it is also, I mean, it's always interesting. Like, there's always the, there's definitely the different levels. And I was having this, I was going to do a, a section on this, but I haven't thought in depth enough about it yet. But I was thinking it was interesting nowadays that um, I feel like in the 70s and stuff, it, it was the technically really good guitarists who were the best, who were thought of as the best, like uh, your Brian Mays and your Jimi Hendrixes and all that. Yeah. Um, whereas now I feel like the technically best guitarists, like, I don't know, people like Tosin Abassi or someone like that, aren't in bands that people have really heard of or they haven't really heard of them. Yeah. Um, because they're probably really great at noodling and, like you say, wanking off the fretboard. <laughs> but <laughs> in a way, of, it's kind of like it's kind of because there's been a, there's been a movement away from guitar music in the mainstream, hasn't there? Really. Um, although this was probably already, and I think this was probably already an element in the '90s as well, even when guitar music was big. But I think metal was still also more popular in the mainstream than it is now, and I think that's a whole part of it, probably. Yeah, that's true, probably. Well, I guess it, I think it got heavy. Yeah, well, metal now I feel like is heavier than it used to be. So you can kind of Probably, see yeah. why it's mm -hmm. some people have stuck to the older stuff and not gone with the newer stuff. But yeah, it's just a, it's really interesting. And 
it's an area that I'm totally in the creativity is better than wanking off the fretboard camp. Although you need a certain level of, it's about finding like the right level of skill to then be able to be creative with it. <laughs> yeah. So for what you need, basically, is, is the way I see it. Um, I don't think that's, I don't like, I've never been a fan of bands who just, who essentially are showing off uh, yeah. and have like, oh, look at this fucking great solo. If it sounds great and it's really technically great, then yeah, cool, that's great. But if it's just, I can play a million notes a second. You uh, want there to be some spirit to it, don't you? Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Totally. Um, but I'd, off the top of my head, I'd say my favourites would, I think Kirk Cobain would be up there. I absolutely love Jimi Hendrix. Um, I love the way he plays basically rhythm and lead at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I think probably, I don't know if anyone's done as well since. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, I mean, I love Hendrix. <clears throat> I think the reason, the reason I've got the guitarists I've got there on the list is because uh, my, my top preferences are probably a, a little bit away from something psychedelic, which I think mm-hmm. Hendrix was more. But I, I certainly admire that a lot. Yeah, for sure. And um, I'm a massive Tom Morello fan. But again, he's oh, yeah. one that I don't know. I've not. I wouldn't be surprised if his stuff isn't that technically difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd imagine he uses loads of. I've never looked into it because I haven't learned any of his stuff. But I'd imagine he uses a lot of weird tunings. Um, well, yeah, I mean, eleven out of ten for innovation, I would say, from what I know yeah. about Morello. I mean, he basically <laughs> he basically plays it as if it's a new sort of hip hop instrument, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. Which is cool. Um, and that's the other thing: tunings. I've not even mentioned. You can tune the whole bloody thing completely differently. Yeah, some of, the vi- some of the videos I watched mentioned tunings for each individual riff, um, and you can see the variety with certain guitarists. Yeah, it's completely, and it's. I think the easiest way to make yourself look good is to use a, tu- a, a slightly alternative tuning. Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, um, tallest man on earth, is one of my favourite guitarists, and he's acoustic and uses electric as well. But he's a bit different in that he, when he plays live, he's generally just playing his electric guitar on his own, like he doesn't have any drummers or anything, right. or bassist. Uh, so he just makes it sound huge and has loads of all cool effects. But he's very good finger picking. He, but he uses like a million different tunings, and I learned one of his tunings. And a lot of my songs are in one particular tuning, which people don't use except him. Uh, and whenever I right. play it live, people are always, "Oh, you're really good. What bloody what were you doing then?" I was just like, "It's not. It, it, <laughs> if anything, it's easier than standard tuning because I'm just most of the time the chords are just two fingers. <laughs> but because people don't know what you're doing, they immediately think it must be amazing. That's like a cheat code. <laughs> Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that, that is interesting, though. Because these are things I don't really know much about. Um, it just shows how there's a whole extra element to things that you're listening to that you don't really know about. There is, yeah. And if you play in, if people see you playing all CGF, they'll be like, eh, it's just playing CG and F, maybe. Uh, yeah. you, might be, you might be playing CG and F, but in a different tuning, and they'll think it's amazing. It's like, well, it's the same thing, mate. But... <laughs> I think I think that's I mean I think it's benefited me because you do obviously you do get people who go who are going to judge it from a technical perspective. I think mm-hmm. it can. I mean, this is certainly not an issue with you, Clive, but with certain people, I think it does close their minds a little bit uh, if they're just coming at it from that angle constantly. You know. Yeah, because it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like I say, I think it's a it's a it's a base level for the creativity to happen like you know david gilmore wouldn't have done the amazing solos he did there's another one of my favorite guitarists mm-hmm. if he wasn't bloody great at guitar but you don't see you know if you listen to him he never fucking <laughs> he doesn't ever play like a million notes a second it's always yeah. very measured and very like he just knows when to play the perfect note all the time which is in itself a great skill mm-hmm. and he's obviously learned that and he's obviously a very very proficient guitarist but he does it in a way that's you know emotionally effective or whatever yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, you're going to 
leave me down a black hole talking about guitar so we better move <laughs> on to the to the meat in the sandwich alex wayne okay well i'll just briefly say on that uh, on that topic um I'm, when Michael says he's out of his depth discussing the technical aspects of guitar playing, I'm already drowned. Um, but but for me, when I'm listening to somebody play guitar and it's you know particularly speaking to me, it's almost more about how it makes me feel than the, than the technical aspect. Mm. I've described some of my favourite, for example, solos to people in the past, and I've I've had what I would call guitar balls. You know what I mean? The type of people who um, are only in it for the technicality, you know, basically dismiss it as nothing special. But to me, yeah. it's, it's all about the context of the guitar in the rest of the song. Um, that's all I wanted to say. But um, So if I were to list my favourite guitarists, which I haven't done, um, I might be listing people who aren't particularly technically good. But to me, well, for, for me, music is purely how it makes me feel rather than uh, skill yeah. level. I think that's a good summary, basically, of exactly what I've I felt as well. So, yeah, yeah I think that's definitely Yeah, true. yeah, totally. So, and sometimes if you, I think if you play an instrument, you're naturally going to, there's a certain level of where you just can't help being impressed if someone's really good at something, and that gives you an extra level of joy that you wouldn't oh, get yeah, if you don't yeah. play the instrument. Do you know what I mean? Like, for me, I definitely get that with drummers. Like, if someone's a really fucking good drummer, I'll be like, mm. I love good drumming albums because I drum. Um, and I'm like, oh, that's really good. And technically, it sounds brilliant, but it has to sound good as well. And it's usually not wanky. But I think some people who don't drum would probably say he's a bit wanky. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so it definitely changes when you do play an instrument. It, de- it depends as a piece of the jigsaw, I think, because Brandela from Mastodon is one of my favorite drummers, and he's definitely one of the most technically gifted in the world as well. Uh, and I know, I know that from things I've read as well. And you can sort of tell by listening to it, but it's it works so well because it fits the music like a glove. If you've just got a drummer going mental in the background, <laughs> then it's it's not going to be worth anything, is it? But that's no. that's the difference, I think. Yeah, like Alex said, it's con- context is key. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. <laughs> hey, you've put the capstone on that way. Okay. Yeah, well, well, yeah. I, I can't <laughs> with musical discussion. In. I can't often add that much, but uh, happy to in this occasion. Um, now I'll, ret- I'll retreat back to my safety zone. Uh, I'm going to talk about a film today. Um, it is a 2020 release. Uh, no cinematic release, though. Um, it- it's a Netflix original. Um, as far as I understand, it was intended originally to be uh, released cinematically. Uh, but as with a lot of films this year, um, they've decided to sell to a streaming platform rather than lose out entirely. Um, so the film in question is His House, which is... I, I would probably loosely describe it as a psychological horror film, um, British, kind of a joint British-African production, um, written and directed by uh, Remy Weeks. This is their film debut. This is his film debut, uh, starring uh, Wumni Masaku, uh, Sophie Derizu, and Matt Smith. Um, which quite quite a contrast in names there. <laughs> I was just um, say, it sounds sounds made up, doesn't it, compared to the other? Well. Both two actors. If you if you told if I'll be honest, if you told me their names before, I would have said I've never heard of them. But um, you have okay, Sopi Derizu, I know from the TV show Humans, the Channel Four show, and Wumni Masaku is from uh, Lovecraft Country, which you know I loved. Uh, and obviously Matt Smith is well, formerly Doctor Who, I suppose. Um, the plot um, concerns a South Sudanese couple who uh, lost their daughter fleeing a bitter civil war. Uh, they're given a quite a dilapidated, shabby council house in an und- undisclosed part of Britain, but seems to be London, um, while they're waiting to get their asylum claim ratified. 
um, their life steadily becomes a horror on two different fronts as they experience a very hostile reception from locals and officials while battling literal ghosts that have travelled from South Sudan with them and live inside their walls. Um, this is, a, I mean, anybody who's listened to me talk about horror in the past knows that I'm not generally just a fan of um, pure jump scares, pure uh, gore fest. To me, horror is interesting when it has a subtext, uh, when it's more about the chills and the atmosphere than it is about literally jumping out of your skin. And this is classic, what I would call, subtext horror film. Um, the deeper subject matter is pretty much on its sleeve. Um, the fact that um, this couple are experiencing literal monsters while dealing with everyday monsters. Um, you know, <laughs> anybody could read that into this. Um, but it, re it really does it uh, skillfully. Um, during their perilous crossing from South Sudan, they lose their daughter and uh, various other friends uh, to the waves, and their their fears and their their poor their, their trauma literally manifests into ghouls that torment them. Uh, especially the main character Vol, who becomes increasingly violent. Um, all the while, the couple live in very squalid conditions, and their neighbours show scant sympathy and obviously an extreme amount of hostility. Um, probably one of the key, the key moments in the film for me in that respect is um, the uh, the character Ryle is being trying to find a local church that she's been given a map to, um, and she's walking through a labyrinthian um, estate, encountering looks and um, kind of general levels of uh, nastiness from all, all people around her, and she, she she doesn't seem to dare ask anyone for help. But she decides that she will ask a group of black teenagers, uh, assuming, obviously, that they'll have much more sympathy towards her. Uh, but what she gets back is, well, perhaps not racism, but xenophobia, as she's, uh, and he's, she seems more disheartened by this than anything else. And the entire film, I would say, is a commentary on, on British racism uh, towards uh, asylum seekers, refugees. Um, and it's not just the outward, outwardly hostile... Um, neighbors it's more the institutional racism that's picked up upon um the, the the middle class people who are defining where their future lies uh, are all about the the dropped hints the assumptions uh there's a line in the place where they're in, they're introduced to their uh, their dilapidated house and it's described as a palace and bigger bigger than oh it's bigger than my house uh, there's an implied ingratitude um and it, it's it's quite a nasty undercurrent but um instinctively feels like an, an accurate portrayal um, there's definitely echoes of um, a film called Atlantics which is also on Netflix which is a Senegalese horror film uh, which mixes African legend with African refugee reality and um, I would also I would also say that The Shining is a clear inspiration as often uh, the main character Bull becomes increasingly more of a threat uh, than the actual ghosts living in the walls Um but the film ultimately is more about um, its political. It's more about the human experience than it is about its subtext and political message. Uh, Bol and Real are haunted by their life experiences and the journey they took to save themselves um, from a horrendous civil war um, has left them with trauma that they have to live with rather than move past. Um, I think often the assumption, particularly in modern day cat 
poster philosophy is that you have to move on from your trauma, but ultimately um, they have to digest it and absorb it into their life, which takes a very literal form in, in this case. Um, I was fascinated by this, and I, th I thought it was, um, f from a pure horror standpoint, it was um, unsettling and, and contains in it some imagery which is will, will live with you. Um, but from a socio-political standpoint, um, it's a very important message. Um, I think you can enjoy it probably on multiple levels, but if um, if you do have a sympathetic sympathetic soul, um, you'll take a lot more from it. Um, I, I was I was extremely impressed by this. Sounds great. Um, I, have you heard of this one, Clive? Um, I didn't catch the. I think your internet cut out at the start. I didn't catch the name of it. His oh. house. Oh, it's called His House. Okay. No, I haven't in that case. No, I thought I'd heard of... When you started talking about it, I was like, I think I've heard of something similar to this. Um, but no, it sounds really interesting and definitely well up my street. You know, I'm just looking at the like poster for it and stuff now, and I definitely haven't seen it. To be honest with you, the title, I'm not really sure what where it reflects in the story. Um, but in fact, I, and I've, I've racked my brains, and I can't really see where the title... The title, to me, doesn't really work, but where, where the film really does. Um... I, th I thought it was, I mean, you could easily have just done a film about, you know, refugees experiencing racism um, in Britain or any other country. Um, but I think the fact that you, you contextualise it with you know, a classic horror, you know, a horror ghost story, effectively, um, is very interesting. And um, the main character, Bull, literally starts hammering at the walls and breaking through the walls, trying to um, stop these ghosts tormenting him. And the crack, the cracks and holes he leaves in the walls uh, lead to some startling imagery, where you can see uh, people's faces just gr in the corner of the corner of the screen, just going through. And um, it, it, it's unsettling stuff. And I'm not often creeped out by apparitions. Um, I know you haven't seen this, Michael, but um, is it still one that you'll consider? Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Um, I love, uh, well, I mean, I think all horror has a subtext of some sort, um, but I love ones that really go after a bit of uh, a bit of social commentary. This sounds, from what you're saying, this sounds like if Ken Loach did horror. Um, yeah, especially actually, yeah. especially because he's known for his stuff being quite on the nose. Uh, but it it seems like this seems like this packs the social commentary of uh, a film like Get Out, maybe, but with maybe with less subtlety. Um, I don't know. I Perhaps it maybe I'm not selling it. it, it it's definitely it's not hiding its subtext. Obviously, I mean it would be hard to do, um, but it is. It, it's almost social realism meets a ghost story, um, yeah. which is you know should be they should be fighting against each other, but somehow that it works. Um, yeah. Well, I also appreciate you uh, digging out some of these gems from the year for in terms of film because it's never been harder to find the uh, the best film releases than it has this year. I think. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Well, I think. Um, I mean, obviously, we're lucky in a respect because I might never have seen this had it not been for the pandemic. Because if it had had a cinematic release, doubtlessly it would have been on nowhere near here, and maybe yeah. it would have eventually turned up on a streaming service, and then I'd have seen it. But. Even then, without a fanfare, may not have seen it. Um, yeah. So that is one of the very few benefits of um, this pandemic. Um, that this is going to get a wider audience, and I don't know how successful it's been for Netflix, but they definitely um, they put some some marketing muscle behind it, 
Um, and it showed up on my Netflix. Now, I know everybody's is different depending on which, you know, how your viewing habits, but um, mm. yeah, I was I was fascinated by this. Yeah, very. it does sound, I mean, it sounds very interesting. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'd like to see it. Same, I'll be adding it to the list. Before we move on from this, I would, Michael, I, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, f- let's say circa 2020 what sorry 2010 what would be your favorite horror film what do you mean circa 2010 well not sorry not circa not the right word since 2010 <laughs> sorry oh since since 2010 yeah. uh oh. i think um it follows would be a contender as would uh midsummer unless i'm uh, unless i'm missing anything obvious they're the two that jump into my head okay and I don't know if you watch have watched as much, Clive, but what would yours be? Um, I really want to see it, fellas, and I keep meaning to watch it. Possibly Get Out. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be up there for sure. Um, or what was the one after Get Out? From the same director? Us. Us. Okay. Us is underrated, I think. I mean, Uz. Get Out yeah. is definitely outstanding, but for me, Us doesn't fall too far behind. Yeah, I think... between those two, but I've not seen loads. Um, I liked um, the one that Mark Commode likes a lot as well, Babadook. The Babadook, yeah, that, yeah. that that's See, what that's, I was going to say. That's the one I still haven't seen. Well, actually, um, even though they're about totally different topics and in different settings, I think uh, structurally the Babadook is probably the closest to his house, uh, more so than Get Out, definitely, because you've, you've got a story which is, in the Babadook's case, more about the mental health of the main character than it is about literal apparitions. And this one's more about the, the social reality of the two protagonists than it is about apparitions. So I, I would I would say they're good bedfellows, actually, even though they're about totally different topics. Mm-hmm. I think um, Hereditary was, was great, too. Um, yes. But I think the thi- that's, that's the, the difference between that and what we were just saying about Jordan Peele's films, I think, in terms of Ari Aster, Midsommar blew it out of the water for me. Okay, interesting. I think I Midsommar, preferred... was, Midsommar was perfect for me. I loved Midsommar, but I think I preferred Hereditary. Um, right, but, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I think we I think in recent times we have, we have been treated to a lot of top-quality horror. I mean... Horror always churns out some really crap films as well, which is just you know the yeah. type of films that are just obsessed by getting people into the cinema to shriek and laugh and probably talk over half the. I mean, horror audiences are famously the worst behaved, but um, you know there are there are some gems out there, and I'm I'm not someone who was ever naturally a massive horror fan, uh, but when it's done right, what a genre! For sure. I should mention as well that one thing that doesn't hurt with uh, it follows is disaster pieces score, which is immense. Mm, okay, it's that's a that's a modern classic of the horror score genre for sure. Mm. Okay, well Great. that's all I've got to say on that, Clive. You want to uh, get us back to some bread? <laughs> yeah, I think we need to. Uh, <laughs> thanks Let for the that help. bread. Great film. Yeah, we need to finish this sandwich off. Because um, it's not just a bit of bread with some meat on it; it's a full-on sandwich. It's not an open sandwich. And to complete that sandwich, we need to go back to Michael Johnson. What's our next bit of bread? Okay, a bit of an abstract bit of bread. This one. Um, 
going to talk about uh, talked about how I, how I perceive some guitar playing. We're going to talk about how we perceive albums just a little bit. Uh, so the inspiration behind this was an excellent article I read this week on Pitchfork by Jason Green. Uh, how Leonard Cohen haunted the Trump era. Um, the late singer-songwriter's baleful devotionals offered a spiritual soundtrack to the cynicism and chaos around us. Now, I think your average person is going to turn their nose up at that and say Leonard Cohen's got nothing to do with uh, Donald Trump. But the uh, anyone who knows me knows I love out like that, basically. Um, so the linking of topics that don't seem directly connected. Uh, and that was an excellent article. Uh, and one point that's made in the article is that uh, Lana Del Rey is essentially um, a modern update or replacement of Leonard Cohen, in uh, in Green's opinion. Uh, and that inspired me to listen to both uh, Songs of Leonard Cohen, the, uh, the 60s classic by Leonard Cohen, which I've only recently uh, heard for the first time, uh, and also uh, Norman fucking Rockwell, Lana Del Rey's uh, classic, our instant classic from last year. Um, and I guess what my point is, what I've been thinking about when I've listened to these uh, albums is, touched upon before the sort of the amorphous nature of albums, uh, and especially when Clive was covering the 60s in his uh, in his challenge, we um, we sort of discussed a little bit about how you know that was when the nature of what constituted an album was first birthed, really. Um, and even live documents at that point were, I mean, they t- it. it especially looking back now as a retrospective, they took on a significance uh, basically equal to the studio album, which I think faded more over time. I think now, uh, in the contemporary era, we've reached a point where there's been, there's been no, no shortage of people reading the, uh, the last rights to the idea of the album uh, for understandable reasons, but it definitely hasn't happened yet. Uh, and there's been a bit of a shift, I think, in what constitutes an album. Uh, things that previously would have been considered an EP, most likely, have been in recent years considered uh, albums like the uh, the 100 Gex debut album, uh, and I think most prominently the recordings from the uh, the Kanye West Wyoming sessions, uh, which were all very short, about 20 minutes long, but have still been viewed as albums. So these things change with the times, uh, and I guess my point in listening to uh, the Cohen album and uh, Lam Del Rey album uh, that I thought was interesting was. I mean, Leonard Cohen's album is basically it's uh, acoustic guitar. Uh, Cohen worked as a poet a lot, and this is basically just um, just I mean, it's it's poetry set to music essentially. Uh, and I think Cohen was a lot older when he first came out with his first album, um, and more established as a poet than a songwriter than say Bob Dylan was when he first started recording music. Um, so I think it's interesting. But I think what struck me is that this that album could come out now. If you're listening to that, it's not obvious that it's from 1967. And I think the reverse is true of um, of Del Rey's album. I think you could easily listen to that, and other than references to an iPad and Kanye West in the lyrics, etc., you know, that could be from the 1960s. And if it was, it would definitely be considered one of the best albums of the 1960s. It's one of the best albums of the 2010s for me. Um, and I think that's very interesting and also ties into this, the way we perceive albums... They come with a lot of historical baggage, a lot of context. And it was, I think it would sometimes be interesting to listen to an album and go, could this come from a different decade? If not, why not? And if it did come from a different decade, how would we uh, perceive it to be in comparison to how we perceive it now? Uh, that's sort of something I've been uh, thinking about. 
And also, another thing I think is uh, I'm going to mention is that um, often the, when you first listen to an album, it really there's a big difference between you've never heard an artist's albums before and you go, oh, I'm going to listen to this one now, this new album, and it's the first you hear from them compared to when you're familiar with an artist throughout their entire career and you listen to their albums in order and you live with them. It's completely different and it affects the way you, you hear an album for the first time for sure. Uh, and I mention this because for me in the 2010s there's a great there's a great symmetry to the decade musically because the art, the decade is bookended by two masterpieces um, 2010 Kanye West My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy and uh, and this Lana Del Rey album in 2019 and I think there are a lot of similarities between the albums in terms of the character how they how they uh, operate as character studies of their respective protagonists. Uh, which I'd I'd love to dig into at a different time, uh, but another thing that ties them together for me personally is that Kanye. Um, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever, I think I've said before. I don't think I'd ever anticipated an album in my life as much as I did that Kanye album, uh, and it could not. I, I don't think there'll ever be an album that I anticipate as much again, and that lives so spectacularly up to and beyond expectations. Uh, and Kanye's career even though i'm still a fan and still listen uh, fervently has been on basically a downward trajectory from that point and over the exact same period del rey was on the opposite trajectory um so she really emerged around exactly the same time 2010 and has worked her way up to this masterpiece album uh, and i'm going backwards through her discography in the opposite direction currently to the way i've worked through kanye's uh and there's that's why I'm saying this is there's a superb uh, symmetry there that for me personally has happened. Obviously, it's happened by accident. It's happened uniquely, uh, but that'll always live with me. The way that I dig the, dig through their their work and the way I perceive it, it's affected by these things that I haven't planned and that are essentially beyond my control. Uh, but I think when whenever someone talks about their relationship to an artist, these are sort of, these are the hidden factors in the background that. Um, that we don't really think as much about and obviously we don't really consider how how it's affect it affects their perception of an artist so it always comes with that extra that extra baggage as i mentioned uh so I, it's just they're, they're just things i've been thinking about that i wanted to mention and uh i think it, it works in terms of artists like that in terms of decades and it works as a as i've said at the start in terms of um in terms of the way that the album as a format has altered over time as well, uh, but I mean, I mean, it's just this. This is a great example of why the best the best music music journalism uh, sparks these sort of conversations, even if it's just a conversation with yourself, like I've been having since I read that article. Uh, but that is an excellent article, and I'd recommend that to to people if they want to go away and read that. Uh, people people love to uh, they do love to hate Pitchfork, but it's been certainly one of the biggest influences on me in terms of the way I consume music. And for me, they can they continue to uh, to bring out quality music journalism, uh, which I really appreciate. Would agree with that. Um, I need to read that. I need, I need to read more in general. But I've been reading mainly about stuff from the seventies. But <laughs> talk for um, endlessly about this, Michael. But um, some some of the points that you picked up on the the length thing is definitely a thing. Like um, obviously, I'm in, I'm on seventy seven now, and it's pretty rare that an album is less than 40 minutes long. Yeah. Um, mm. uh, except, um, I think Ramon's, Ramon's uh, debut album was, for example, half an hour, and some of the more punky stuff's been a bit shorter. Yeah. Um, but whereas now it is, I think, much more common that 
albums are shorter, like you say, and can be sometimes even around the 20-minute mark. Um, and in fact, the album I'm just putting out, I'm not sure it's going to be. It's going to be under 30 minutes, and I can't oh. decide whether to call it an EP or an album. And I feel like at this point, it's an, an EP. Album, yeah. At this point, it's probably an album. Or I feel like you do an EP when you think it's not as. I don't know. An EP almost gets a bit more forgotten. So it's like, yeah. are you putting something out with a bit less confidence, or you think maybe it's not um, meaty enough to be an album, both, in, con- both in concept and in size? <laughs> Do you know what that I mean? Is, that is massively true. I think. I think there's been it's been like it's been a matter of artistic intention a lot of the time when something's been called an EP. Um, and I think sometimes things are put out that no no real label is attached to them by the artist, and if they're considered extremely high in quality or significance the critical community does the work for them and I think that's when they sometimes become an album rather than an EP so I think that's definitely true yeah it's in, it's interesting like I looked into it whether there was a, de- a definition at the minute for example when it goes on Spotify and it sounds like it's going to be put it'll be put on as an EP anyway because it's less than half an hour um, I assume you have to write it right, okay. or be famous for it to be <laughs> I mean yeah <laughs> but I don't know I've not it done it yet it doesn't so. work does it because that would mean like Pink Moon wasn't an album you know yeah um, it, do, it doesn't work at all it's ridiculous um, and, and it looks I was like oh, so what have they got Joyce Manor down as an album and they have so and that's 13 yeah. minutes long that's um, another Joyce Manor another good example actually of what I was saying yeah definitely so yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I haven't. I haven't decided. But I'll probably just release it as a like you say. Don't say this is a release. You it's just do, a, do with it what you want. <laughs> it's a musical release. That's all it is. Yeah. So, but it is interesting, and I totally agree with um, the way you look at an album massively. Like the context you listen to it is massively going to change how mm. what you think of it, and if that's as a context of listening through someone's discography or just. Oh, I think this is high up on a 2020 list. I've never heard of this band. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to listen to this album. Um, I'd say the f- former for me tends to lead me to like stuff more because I'm getting really into the artist and I'm probably understanding them a bit more. Yeah. And then I'll, there'll be some album in that discography that I absolutely love, whereas I'm less likely to probably do that if it's just out, something out of the blue. Although that can happen because sometimes it's just like, wow, this is kind of unlike anything I've heard. Um, and then that'll maybe lead you to going into the discography stuff, which will then <laughs> lead to the same thing. Yeah, but, it's, um, a whole, it's a whole thing, isn't it? Yeah. But it, it is interesting, yeah. Because of the way I'm do- going through the like 60s and 70s, I am generally, if they've had lots of high-rated albums, I'm kind of going through the best bits of people's discographies um, mm, yeah. as part of it. So I tend to get to an album having already listened to some before, or if it's a really impressive debut that went down really well, I'll probably enjoy it as well because I suppose it. everyone was listening to it at that point from that perspective. Um, but the thing that struck me the most is the amount of stuff that I swear like 50 to 60% of the albums that are now very heavily regard, highly regarded were launched to mixed, review, mixed reviews. <laughs> and I think that's, that's the probably thing, yeah. less yeah. of the case now, what you'd imagine. It, I mean, we'll see in 10 years' time. But I can't imagine that like albums that were kind of had a mixed meh kind of reception now will be famous in 10 years time i can see like maybe some that were absolutely hated yeah maybe that'll turn but i think it's probably something to do with how it's a lot harder to break ground now isn't it whereas obviously in the 70s especially when that was happening a lot it was more it was probably considered more controversial prime example would be black sabbath being dismissed when they emerged um and then obviously that's that perception has altered that reception has altered massively over time um, 
but I, I, I'm, I'm touching on some of the other things you were saying they're definitely all true uh, I've, sometimes I'll, I'll listen to an older album and it'll take ages to click with me and then when it eventually does I'll think well I know for a fact that if I'd, if I'd been around when this came out listening to music and it was a new album and I was already into them I know I'd have loved it straight away so it's funny how you have to sometimes do that work to appreciate it and well in the reverse case sometimes you come to a band that you've used obviously because of what you're doing Clyde like you said you're coming across their most acclaimed stuff sometimes you discover uh, something deeper in their discography and for you it's just as good as any of the so-called best stuff and you're thinking well why I wonder why this isn't as acclaimed a good example for me is where Warehouse by Husker Du which is one of my favourite of their albums for sure uh, but isn't really perceived that way so these things are always fascinating yeah definitely true and you kind of wonder whether when it, it is it just because people haven't gone back and listened to that enough <laughs> since, yeah. since when it came out because yeah. there's so much stuff because um, if a band's if a band's or an act's prominence in the in the general conversation slides during their career at the time that that album comes out it could be decades before um before it becomes you know talked about again like you're saying and this is this is why I love being part of music Twitter because you see conversations bubbling up and you see the most random acts and albums sort of come back into the conversation and then you go away and listen to them yourself and you find a new appreciation of it and it just never ends with music that's the beauty of it yeah exactly it just it, it just takes one prominent music journalist to go this is yeah. the best one and then suddenly people are listening to it again and then Pretty probably much. a lot of people end up agreeing and then it starts a movement of of, of, of that being the most acclaimed album or whatever um, yeah and even though even though they, that 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 gr- that group of prominent music journalists is far more low key and shriveled essentially compared to the golden age of the 70s which you'll know about at the moment uh, it still exists you know and it, that sort of influence is still a thing for sure yeah definitely in fact, one of the things i'm um a bit, a bit off topic, but one of the which seems a bit most disputed is Joni Mitchell's discography. It seems to be a lot of people calling different ones her masterpiece, <laughs> more so yeah. than I've experienced with any other artist, well, um, I think, which I find interesting. I think Blue, did it make it as high as number two on the new Rolling Stone 500 this year? Uh, it was certainly extremely high, which I love because it's one of my favourite albums uh, ever. Uh, so I think Blue is the consensus, but after that, there's probably a lot more divide. I know you lauded uh, the hissing of Summer Lawns, didn't you? Um, that uh, is my favourite, but I've just um, as well done um, Hegira. I don't know how you pronounce it. Hegira. I, I haven't heard that, to be honest. <laughs> uh, which is also fabulous. Um, I like, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd put all three of those on a similar level, to be honest. Yeah. Hissing of Summer Lawns is excellent, but that's an album that took a while for me to get into. But then it happened suddenly, and you're like, I don't know why I didn't like this before, why I didn't get this before. Not didn't like, more didn't get. Um, it's funny how albums unlock themselves like that, but uh, yeah, it's an excellent album. Um, and I think even now, with Blue getting ranked that high on Rolling Stone 500, etc., um, even now we're still we're still only just getting into the true appreciation of you know of, of what she did really. I think. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and I think a lot of it as well is that the um, Hegira and Hissing of Summer Lawns are quite... Um, it's a lot of... Lyric, the lyrical content is a lot of what makes them so amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I feel like often that's not necessarily what people talk about with Joni... Or not what necessarily what I think about necessarily with, with Joni Mitchell, which is wrong. Uh, <laughs> because yeah. Whereas I think Blue is melodically a masterpiece as well. Um, and it's less... 
it has great lyrics. Um, I would I wouldn't say they're as good as those those two in my opinion, but um, but yeah, it's more melodically accessible um, than than the other two albums without a doubt. Um, yeah, the other stuff's more jazzy, isn't it? Really, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but they. I mean, she. I mean, she was. She. She should be considered as one of the most prominent uh, parts of that that era where you know singer songwriter stuff was the, you know that was that was the peak of uh, pop culture, wasn't it? In the way that television is considered now, it very much was, and those that sort of, those sort of poetic lyrics were considered a key part of that. Yeah. Exactly. All very interesting. Yeah, we. I mean, we literally could go for another hour on that, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for definite. Um, Al, I'm assuming you don't have anything else to ruin our sandwich, which has now been perfectly formed. Not really, but I've got I've got a few crisps to put on the side. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's not going to ruin it, so that's fine. No, yeah, yeah. Is it is, uh, so is it a full is it a full crescent of crisps? Yeah, a crescent. Yeah, maybe not a full bag. You know, just a crescent <laughs> of. Um, you know, lovely salt and vinegar crisps. Oh, uh, don't, no, no. <laughs> don't start this again. Anyway, <laughs> no um, I'm not going to do a full review, but um, a film I watched uh, yesterday, uh, just give a recommendation to it. Uh, so it's a 2019 Irish crime drama film that, again, see, it sounds like I'm um, their representative here, but it's another one that's on Netflix. Uh, it's called Calm With Horses. Um, it stars Cosmo Jarvis, uh, Barry Keogh, and other people. Um, it's set in a kind of a rural island where the main character is a um, basically a hired thug or muscle for a uh, drug dealing family. Um, he hasn't had the the best life. He was a former boxer, um, and now he just basically beats up people for them. Um, he has a a learning disabled son. Um, I, th- I think perhaps autistic. It's never made entirely clear in the film uh, with his ex-girlfriend who he's trying to provide for. Um, it's just a really interesting crime film, actually. Film actually, it's uh, really under- underpinned by an, an excellent electronic score. Um, the film is is well directed. Um, the performance by Cosmo Jarvis is outstanding. Um, he's he's playing. A, I'm told he's playing a culshy Irish person, according to Nicola. Um, and it's it's not your standard kind of like Dublin Irish accent. Um, now I had no idea he was British slash American before we um, watched the film, but his accent is is spot on. Uh, the film is it's just a really good tight crime film in an in an unusual setting. I mean, how often do you get crime film set film set in the country? Um, if you're looking for that kind of crime thriller, you'll do a lot worse than this. It's unpretentious um there's no intricate plotting here there is just a hired muscle struggling to live two lives um and it just gets a bit out of control highly recommended that's all i've got to say you're not the first person to recommend this i can't remember who else did um so yeah i definitely need to check this out also sounds great there's some really beautiful imagery in it as well i mean the title calm with horses refers to um is autistic son who um, seems to... The world is a bit much for him, uh, but he's extremely calm when he's taken horse riding. And um, there is an implication as well that the main character is much like one of the horses. He's a kind of a big, dumb brute who is manipulated by people. Um, Yeah, really interesting watch. 
I would I would have had a full review, but I, I haven't had time to digest it. But I know enough that I, I would recommend it. Great. It was Scroobius Pip, actually. I've just remembered who was recommending right. this. Um, said it was currently the best thing on Netflix. <laughs> Big claim. At least uh, at least in our future dystopia, when you won't have to say that bit because everything will be on Netflix anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Amazon, uh, Netflix versus Amazon. Uh, but they'll, be, yeah. they'll, they'll both be owned by Bezos, though. Um, <laughs> but just, yeah, you know, running competition against uh, each other. For sorry, no, 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 no. Don't, don't call him Bezos, the Overlord. Just, yeah. <laughs> or just will it be like the you, you is it Unilever or Unilever? Do they pronounce it? Lever, um, I believe. Where they just kind of don't put the stuff, don't put on that on the packaging because they wanted it to look as if they didn't want to look like they owned everything. Um, <laughs> Sneaky. Yeah. I, I am. I imagine in future though he won't want to be called Bezos or even the Overlord. He'll just want everybody to know him as Uncle Jeff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then that'll be, that'll be mandated by the world government. Yeah, and um, you you'll no plan. longer be <laughs> you'll no longer be able to get like you know old folksy products like uh, Aunt Bessie's. It'll just be Uncle <laughs> Jeff's, you know, roast potatoes. <laughs> oh, Christ, <laughs> our next sponsor. <laughs> it's definitely a film made out. Uh, potential for a film to be made with this dystopian future. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Jeff's, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> right well uh, Clive you haven't really obviously you've had plenty to say on the music but you haven't brought up anything yourself individually is there anything you would recommend maybe you don't have a great deal to say on uh, that you've you've digested since we last spoke no it's um, I've not really I've been thinking about what I have digested obviously albums and uh, my own album because I'm a massive masochist um, <laughs> and that's about it, we have been watching uh, The Crown, which I have not watched the first two seasons of, but watched the last two seasons of with Elle and have enjoyed. Um, so that's been all right. Um, we haven't quite finished it yet, though, so I can't comment on the season as a whole. And what else have I watched? I've finished, we've now watched all of Anthony Bourdain's uh, Parts Unknown, all 110 episodes. I haven't watched <laughs> all of them. Some of them I've watched without me. Uh, but I, uh, having finished them all, I completely... Uh, Go back to my review of it uh, for more information. But yeah, it's great. Brilliant. Uh, and I think most people should watch it. And I've actually discovered a few of my friends really liked it that I didn't realise watched it, uh, which has been a nice thing. Uh, like my mate Alistair from school I spoke to about the other day. And uh, he was like, yeah, I've watched all those as well. And he loved them. So not just me. And I think that's it. I feel like I'm trying to catch up a bit on 2020 music. But I think what I'm going to have to do is just put a stop to the 70s thing for like, a few weeks to help me catch up because I just end up diving back into the 70s um, and I would like to uh, there's loads of 2020 stuff that I want to listen to before we do our lists in I'm thinking end Jan for the list Gives us yeah Jan I'm still, still working on that top 50 yeah so Mine, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do a top 5 on the pod I'm hoping to write, do a top 50 that only involves writing about the top 10 because I can't <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think well, I can write about it. I'm, I'm writing uh, small blurbs. Okay. So I'm not going overboard, but I'm guessing that as I get to the top, they'll start getting longer. <laughs> yeah. And, which, yeah. Well, you're very good at small blurbs. I feel like I'm, uh, I need to write a lot for some reason. Um, but the other thing I wanted to start doing was to play through every uh, Nintendo game, every Nintendo published game. Uh, over a very long period, like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've I've had made a start on this. Um, that is with, ambitious. 
Yippies? Yeah, I, oh, sorry, I, I think I have overplayed it there. Not the every, like the top ten from each console. Oh, okay, um, all right. Thank, that's, thank more, that's more doable, yeah. yeah I was like, yeah. the last thing this guy needs is a project that big. <laughs> I was going to say, that would be bigger than your album challenge, I think. Much bigger. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, because they take long, each of them takes bloody ages. Um, so I, I started this because I, obviously on the Nintendo Switch, if you've got the online service, you can play the NES and SNES games for free on there, um, which is great. There's loads of them. But it only generally has Nintendo published ones. And also, to be honest, I, I was like, I could do the top 10 of everything, but that's like, it's going to be hard to get hold of them. And also, I do just generally love Nintendo games, so why not stick to Nintendo games? So I started doing that, but then I just um, recently I've just been playing loads of guitar and pretty much every spare minute I pick up my guitar and play my guitar instead of <laughs> playing Nintendo games. And also at the minute we're having the attic done, which means all the crap's in the spare room, which is where the Switch currently is. So I can't even sit down. So I will carry on with that at some point because I was... It is a, generally one of the most relaxing activities for me is playing a Nintendo game. But So I'll get back to that challenge, but it's not going to be on the same sort of level as the, <clears throat> the music one. I'm not going to uh, rush it. Not that I'm rushing the music one, but I'm definitely doing it in a more <laughs> you know, try, trying to get it done um, at some point, whereas I'll be less pushy with the other one. So yeah, that's that's kind of what's been happening at my end in the pop culture world. Nice. Not a fat lot, got a lot to catch up with. Well, um, I'm looking forward to uh, reviewing your album slash EP slash release. Um, give it a totally unbiased review. Um, Good. <laughs> <laughs> Hope if it gets anything stop. above an eight, I'm calling it an album. If it's below below an eight, it's going to be an EP. <laughs> then so it's rules. entirely based on your your review. Wait, I hope no it's not. Uh, hope it's not subject to one of Wynn's rants. I feel like we haven't had one of them for oh, a while. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. I hope not. That would be a bit ox, wouldn't it? Look, I've got to maintain my uh, critical credibility, though. You know, if I, if it if it deserves a rant, I've got to rant. I'm sorry, Clive. You know, it, it's fine. You know, we've had a long love, friendship. But, you know, I'll um, sit here and defend it. Yeah, I'd love it if it turns out to be something like some massively experimental, like avant jazz that Wayne just <laughs> Wayne just detests. Can we confirm it's not avant jazz? <laughs> <laughs> or particular I don't know no, I wouldn't say it's particularly experimental it's very it's quite punky if I was going to describe it in one word just Clive sort of scat singing over the sound of a piano being pushed out of a <laughs> three story uh, building in slow motion they think I'm Swedish man but I'm Swiss a load of microphones inside a piano and threw it over <laughs> to be fair, I don't think I'd be able to hit that. That sounds quite incredible. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds. I that's mean, what um, is it? Tim Hecker's rave death is yeah, supposed to be that's based ex on exactly what I was talking about. Okay. <laughs> rave <laughs> death, nineteen seventy two. <laughs> yeah, thought you might have been very interesting musician, Tim Hecker. I love him. Um, I need to delve into him, but yeah, he's someone I almost certainly will love. Yeah, I th I, yeah, I think you'll be able to get something out of it, especially because. Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not like uh, Brian Eno, but I know you're a fan of Brian Eno, aren't you? And uh, yeah, absolutely. definitely part of that whole ambient tradition, just like a modern a modern equivalent. Hmm. Excellent. Um, great, right. Well, I guess it's... Um, it's this is time. usually the time where I, I would say something. Um, well, I don't know what to say now. Uh, you've, uh, you've spoiled my element of surprise. Um, <laughs> Have you ever had it? <laughs> um, well, you know, um, 
plug time? <laughs> clock, clock, clocks went back the other day, didn't they? Yeah. Which has changed the plug time! Hasn't, hasn't. Um, however, you can go on at StickAroundCast on Twitter for followers on there. We will write about when the episodes go up, when my latest uh, music-y album articles go up, whenever anything goes up, including uh, Josh has done a review of a Colson Whitehead book, uh, which I think you also reviewed on the pod, um, Al. And I've just I did, got yeah. the name. Nickel um, Boys, is it? Is it The Nickel Boys? Or Nickel yeah, Boys? The, Nick, the Nickel Boys. Um, excellent, excellent um, book. And uh, Josh agreed with me, I think. He did indeed, can confirm. Um, so, yeah, you can head... You'll see all that kind of stuff on Twitter. Slash Stick Around Podcast is kind of a regurgitated feed on Facebook. If you like that kind of thing, or if you go to stickaroundpodcast.com, that's our lovely, lovely website where you can find everything, every single episode right from the start, every single article. Um, it's the easiest place if, you wanna, if you're interested in my album challenge to like get to each year just because you can click on it and then it has a lovely little picture for each year. You can click on that and it takes you there. It's amazing. They're very aesthetically pleasing, those pictures. Ooh, mm-hmm. um, and they are actually. Someone asked me about this the other day. In fact, a couple of people have sent me um, questions in 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 the website form about them. So, oh, which is a bit odd. Um, one one person sent me a suggestion that I start including mixtapes when I get to the final two decades, because otherwise I'm going to end up reviewing the Minecraft soundtrack. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, cheers, good, good, good. Good heads up for about top a year's tip. time when, <laughs> when I get to the 2000s. Um, that is a top tip, yeah. Saves me. I love how they're that concerned about it. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. It wasn't even a question as well. It was like, and it didn't leave an email, so I can't reply. It does an- uh, but I can relate because it does annoy me when that shit turns up at the top of the RYM charts. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's excellent. I'm just, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. So um, yeah, I can't remember where I was now. You can go. Sorry. You can go to the website. See see all the stuff. Um, and oh, the pictures. Yeah, the pictures. Some, someone had asked me about the pictures, and again, didn't leave the thing to reply to them. And was like, if they're related to anything, and they are. Yeah, generally, I try to pick stuff that's related to that year. It'll be usually some product that was invented that year, or like a building that was built that year. Something like that I tend to go for. I basically go to Wikipedia, buildings built in 19 whenever uh, products <laughs> released in such <laughs> I, and such. I don't, don't reveal the secrets. But yeah. You don't want to know how the magic's done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, d- despite, despite the enthusiasm for those pictures I expressed, that was not me using a pseudonym, just to be clear. Okay, good. <laughs> was it not? Oh. J- Jekyll Monson. <laughs> that, uh, I did wonder why he didn't leave your email address. <laughs> <laughs> So this is just Michael teasing me, isn't it? <laughs> Make sure he doesn't. Re- I really hate it if he reviewed the Minecraft soundtrack. <laughs> best, best warn him early. It's been keeping me awake all. It's been keeping me awake since you started the challenge. The thought. Uh, um, and you can, uh, whatever not done yet, you can find us on any podcast app. Stick around. You've no doubt done that already. Just search for "Stick Around" and we'll come up on Spotify on all the stuff. Um, and if you want to contact us, you can email us at stickaroundpodcast at gmail.com or there's a contact us form on our website. And that comes to me, and that's what people have been using um, to message me about my articles. But if you want to message about the podcast, we'll read it out. It'll be lovely. Um, and do leave your name so we can say, make it up if you want, you know. Travorn messaged in. 
<laughs> with this message great just be good to you know makes people think that it might be real otherwise people think i'm just making it up i'm definitely tempted now to yeah <laughs> 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 yeah well, this is how i can get a third segment in <laughs> i'll teach him um yeah and that's i think that's pretty much everything isn't it unless i've missed something there no, I think so. Um, hopefully, um, well, two two great things are going to happen. Your musical release will be released. <laughs> yeah. And um, we'll be able to put out a few more pods. And uh, like I said, I'm, by the way, you think I'm joking, I'm legit going to review your album on the pod. Great. No, uh, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make sure I mix it really bloody well. <laughs> I'm going to put a hidden message in there as well. Alex Wayne is a super sexy hunk. Um, <laughs> just back masked. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it ends. Me walking off just saying that really quietly under my breath. But if you turn it off loud enough, <laughs> you can hear it. <laughs> Great. I'll slide that in. Excellent. I think there's still time for a Minecraft sample. Well, the only uh, the closest it gets to a sample is I play a Wurlitzer, which is not a genuine Wurlitzer. It is a sampled Wurlitzer because I don't own one. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't. I was trying to play like the real, and I've just started learning the piano. Well, since Christmas, and I just thought I'm not really dynamically quite good enough. So, what instrument can hide can mask my <laughs> lack of piano skill a little bit? And I found a Wurlitzer sample that sounded beautiful. So I was like, that'll do. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I, f- I feel like this could be this could be the recording that brings the Wurlitzer back. <laughs> you, you cut cut to a year from now; it's all you'll hear on radio. <laughs> Singer songwriters reverting back to the Wurlitzer. Yeah, <laughs> I can see it. I can see it. I'm hoping to to start that movement because it's a great instrument. If if only for the name. I mean, what a name! Unbelievable. Yeah. Great. Um, I guess we'll be back. Hopefully a bit more quickly uh, for another episode, and I will try and absorb some pop culture once I've mixed this bloody thing. Um, I'm mainly just excited about you reviewing my album, because that's going to be interesting. Yeah. Is there a title yet? There is a title, which... um, Is it still under wraps? No, James Cable is the first person to know about it, um, Mm -hmm. except for Elle, obviously, um, because he is currently designing the cover. Because uh, just because I had we had I had an alternative title for you, um, <laughs> do, just, do get... uh, just came up with, uh, Wayne accidentally came up with a great album title last night. Uh, he was describing the requirements for people going into uh, medical trials, uh, and he at one point he said uh, just the right amount of eczema. <laughs> I can confirm it's not that. <laughs> I am gonna I am gonna say what it is. Oh, uh, to all our wonderful listeners. Um, the name of the next release yet to be decided whether it'll have an EP on the end it won't because <laughs> um, I let people decide that for themselves is A Summer of Words by the Empty Church nice Ooh, that is that's, that's a good a title name. intriguing as well <laughs> very very mysterious there you go That'll, and on that bombshell <laughs> yeah <laughs> Alex Wayne has been Alex Wayne I have thanks for listening And Michael Johnson has been Michael Johnson. Most definitely. And I have been me. Bye. (laughs) And remember to stick Stick around. around. Stick around.
Thank you all for listening Rest assured that you have found The best podcast in the universe It's Stick Around Right, you might want to go to Michael first then because my second one won't be very long so you may as well have me as the meat and the sandwich Yeah, Michael can be Mm, the concept bread (laughs) Okay you are you are thickly buttered bread, Michael. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that not a fan? Oh, you don't know about my butter phobia? No, I don't think I do. How have we never covered this? Why? I think I we, we we must have done. He must have forgotten. I'm genuinely pretty pretty terrified of butter. So, oh well, okay. I thought it it's... might just be thickly lathered butter, which I kind of understand, but I like butter. Oh, the the, the very phrase "thickly lathered" is appalling. <laughs> Michael's worst nightmare, if you're looking at a way to torture Michael, it would be to kind of like pin him down at the bottom of a child's slide with his mouth wedged open and a stick of butter on the top of the slide in a hot day that slowly melts and slides down the slide towards his mouth. I'm, I'm, gen- I'm genuinely feeling weird now. <laughs> to be fair, I don't know if I'd enjoy that that much. No, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying anybody would enjoy it, but, you know, I can think of worse things than that. The, the the nightmare oh, yeah. the nightmare is is when the butter is inside me. That's when it's worst. Like I, I'm surprised I'm surprised we've never told you, Clive, about the incident <clears throat> last year where I accidentally ate some and then nearly fainted. <laughs> no, you've never told me. Le- legitimately, <laughs> like if if you had you know like one of those little sachets of butter you get at hotels and things. If you gave Michael one of them and slapped a twenty quid note in front of him, he wouldn't eat it. Correct. <laughs> Whereas, although I wouldn't enjoy it, if you did that to me, I would do it. I'd probably feel a I little mean, bit have, sick. I have but... eaten those without being paid twenty pounds. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On a particularly financially tough day. <laughs> mm, sustenance. <laughs> <laughs>